My topic this afternoon as we come to the fourth and final sermon on the letter of James is rejoicing in suffering. And the text, James chapter 1 and verse 2, counted all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now our other readings today speak of God's help to those facing rather specific sorts of trials. For Jeremiah, his prophetic ministry has been rejected and he is being mocked and persecuted. The psalmist in Psalm 124 speaks of people, quote, who rose up against us. In our gospel, the familiar Beatitudes, Jesus blesses those for whom the kingdom of God is intended, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and he also blesses those who will help him bring these people into the kingdom of God, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted for righteousness' sake. He concludes, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. But in our text, James is concerned with trials more broadly. Persecution, yes, but in his letter he also deals with economic oppression, poverty, sickness, the transience of wealth, indeed the transience of life itself. He appeals to the example of Job, whose suffering was not persecution for righteousness' sake, but loss of health and family and fortune. So James is saying that all kinds of suffering and not just the privilege of martyrdom, should be counted as an occasion for joy. And not just being a little bit joyful, mixed in with a lot of other things, but all joy, entirely joyful. It's true that he addresses my brothers in making the statement, and that it is likely from what we surmise about his identity and life that he too experienced economic hardship and persecution leading to his death by stoning. So James doesn't pontificate far above us from a position of safety and security. He calls us his brothers because he is like us in his experience of suffering as well as in his experience of faith. But if we understand joy to be a feeling of intense happiness, he is asking of us what is impossible. If not, we would say things like, wonderful news, dear, the doctor says I have pancreatic cancer, and I can't believe my good fortune. I was told to clean out my desk at work and go home today, and oh, happy day, the obstetrician says there is no heartbeat and our baby has died. This is impossible psychologically speaking. Fortunately for us and for James, while joy, humanly speaking, is intense and very occasional happiness, this is not the sort of joy that James and the other New Testament writers are talking about. In the Upper Room Discourse on the night before his death, Jesus speaks in John chapters 15, 16, and 17 of my joy, that it may be in you, 
and that your joy may be full. Later he says, no one will take your joy from you. And finally, in his prayer to the Father, he says, these things I speak in the world that they, my disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So the perfect joy, which Jesus has because he is in full communion with the Father and does the Father's will, is to be given to Jesus' followers also. Let's call this divine joy and the occasional emotion we experience of intense happiness, human joy. We experience this divine joy through the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul lists it after love and before peace as a fruit of the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul commends the Macedonian church Christians in these terms. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So here we see the connection between grace and joy. Joy is a gift of grace. Indeed, in Greek, the words are very similar. Grace, charis. Joy, kara. But how does this divine joy come into our human experience? How do we receive it? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 helps us to understand. Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, that is Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So joy comes to us at the intersection of faith, hope, and love. While Paul says the greatest of these is love, we need to experience all three to know the joy of Jesus. And this joy becomes a sort of magpipe drone, a sort of figured bass, a continual underneath the melodies of our lives. It is not an emotion so much as a frame of reference, a state of being. Karl Barth in his commentary on Philippians called it a continuous nevertheless drawing its strength from untiring prayer. And Rudolf Bultmann described it as a situation in which the believer no longer needs to ask for anything. You may, if you have been with us throughout the month of July, have wondered why I haven't preached through the letter of James from the beginning, why this is the last rather than the first sermon. It is, after all, the first thing James wants to convey to his readers. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Perhaps it is the most important thing he wants to convey, and by doing so at the outset, he certainly gets our attention. But you cannot, I think, understand what he means by it without working through the rest of the epistle. While it is implicit rather than explicit, I think James would agree with Peter about the origins of the divine joy 
that you and I can experience in the face of trials of various kinds. Living in faith, by wisdom from above, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, as we have seen, are major concerns of James. But where is hope in his letter? We see faith and love. Where is hope? In verse 12 of our reading, James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That is the Christian hope. And in chapter 5, James writes, Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That, too, is the Christian hope. So for James, I think, as well, divine joy arises in us when faith, love, and hope intersect. Now, James is always is practical. He doesn't just leave us with the astonishing command, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. But he gives us a reason to obey, a resource to enable us in this obedience, and a warning against something that will destroy it. The reason not for obeying, we should need no reason to obey God's word if we are living in faith and love and hope, but the reason for deeming trials altogether an occasion for joy is that enduring this testing of our faith produces in us steadfastness. The Greek word is hupomenen, and it means literally hanging in there, sticking tight, persevering. Like a highly conditioned triathlete, a Christian whose steadfastness has increased through many trials, becomes perfect and complete, spiritually speaking, lacking in nothing. This is the reason for obeying the command. The resource to help us in our trials is the persistent asking for wisdom mentioned in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Wisdom, or the Holy Spirit, gives us strength to withstand the trial and endure suffering. But wisdom may also help us to understand how God is fulfilling his promise to be with us in all circumstances and his promise to work together with us for good in the midst of all things, including this present trial. Job's comforters lack that wisdom. But when in the book of Job the Lord shows up, Job was strengthened and in the end restored. The warning James gives is to remind us that the impulse to deal with our suffering in a way that disobeys God is sin and does not come from God. If our trials are ultimately God's responsibility, at least for allowing us to experience them, the temptation to sin that arises in the midst of our struggle comes out of our own desires, says James. Give in to these desires and we fall into sin and into patterns of unrepented sin which can have lethal consequences. Job's wife suggests that he curse God and die. 
but Job refuses. His comforter suggests that he's being punished for his sins, but Job refuses to accept false guilt. In our sufferings, we can blame God and turn our back on him, or blame others and seek to take revenge, or simply withdraw into our shells, deeply depressed, isolated, and wishing for life to end. James says no to all this. Stay centered, he says, where faith and love and hope conjoin in your spirit. When trials come, do not collapse like a house built on sand, but greet them in that divine joy that Jesus gives, knowing that if you do, your experience will strengthen you and others around you, and as well pray without ceasing. So let's do that now. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you know that we suffer or will suffer, and we ask you by your grace to enable us to enter nevertheless into your joy, living in faith with wisdom from above, loving our neighbor as you have loved us, and hoping for your coming to end all mourning and crying and pain. Impress upon our minds today the need to greet affliction as follows. This is a test. God is with me in it. God will work together for good through it. I rejoice in that hope and will remain steadfast. So help me, God. Let us say that together after me, if you would. This is a test. God is with me in it. God will work together for good through it. I rejoice in that hope and will remain steadfast, so help me God. Amen.